humans. Welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. My name is Lauren. And I'm Adam. On this podcast, we want to help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of a lot of our traditional ways of thinking. We're learning to deconstruct the religious lenses we once saw the world through, breaking down topics like purity culture, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like feminism, equality, and love. Stepping away from our evangelical church background, all the while leaning into God and moving forward in our faith. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Erica Smith. She is a sexuality educator with over 20 years of experience in the field. She's known for her signature purity culture dropout program developed in 2019 to teach folks recovering from purity culture, all of the accurate, comprehensive, queer, inclusive, trauma-informed sex ed that they missed. Previously, she worked with young women and LGBTQ plus youth in the juvenile justice system and in HIV prevention. Erica did not grow up in a religious environment, but tailors her sex education to folks who need it the most. And at the moment, that's folks coming out of high demand religions. She lives in Philadelphia with her husband and a house full of rescue animals. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So excited. So you have rescue animals, huh? Oh, God. Well, yeah, there's four cats and two dogs. One of the cats is on my lap as we speak. Um, There's probably, you know, they all, they just kind of follow me around and make appearances. When I see clients, there's a guarantee they're going to see at least one of my animals during a session. I love that. We also, our, our dog is a little rescue herself, so we're... We definitely uh, vibe with the rescue animal thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, so we're really excited to talk with you and hear more about your story because that's, of course, what we're about. We love to hear, you know, how people grew up and how they got to where they are. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that being said, we know that you've worked as a sexual educator now for, like we said, over 20 years. What was the inspiration to to get into that? So... Okay, I feel like clarifying my age is important. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) I'm in my early 40s. I'm 41 right now. Mm -hmm. And so over 20 years, um, that means that I I count when I started, which was like in college. Got it. So I've I've graduated. It's wild to me, truly, that my 20 year graduate graduation anniversary from college is this month. That's something that I've been. (laughs) Trying to wrap my head around. <laughs> that is wild. I know. I yeah. Mine was in 2014 was when I graduated college. And I feel like that was like a lifetime ago already. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. It kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of was. So um, when I was in school, I majored in women's studies, which is pretty typically called women's and gender studies nowadays. But mm-hmm. 20 years ago, it was women's studies. And I found that the classes that I liked the most were the ones where we talked about things like reproductive health and reproductive justice and sexuality. And, you know, going into, it's not like sex ed was a career option presented to me. That was not a career option presented to anyone um, 20 years ago or, you know, more if you count my high school years. So 
I kind of just fell into it from studying women's studies and feminism and realizing that that particular like angle in examining women's lives was the one that I cared the most about. Um, So as a student, um, I went to Penn State University and I was creating like sex education events with my friends and my um, peers. We like ran a lot of the women's groups on campus. And so we did some events that centered around sex education. And it was apparent to me then how controversial of a topic it was, but also a way I still feel is just like, this is just such a factual part of life. Why are we being so weird about it? Right. Um, And so that was when it really started to come together for me that I enjoyed talking to people about these things and I enjoyed like destigmatizing them. Yeah. I love that. So you, you know, you mentioned that you found that some people felt weird about having these conversations. Then how was it that you grew up? Were you, you know, was your family open about sexuality? What were those conversations? Yeah. So, um, when I think about my family, so my parents are still married. They're actually pretty young too. So I was, my mom is like 19 years older than me. She was 19 when I was born. So both my parents are, are young for parents. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And they were not weird. When I say weird, I know that's a vague term, but um, <laughs> my, my mom was one of five sisters and she and her sisters and her parents, my beloved grandparents were just, they made jokes out of everything, including yeah. sex. So I grew up just hearing like, funny jokes about sex stuff. I watched soap operas with my mom and my grandma. Um, It wasn't a thing that I was ever given a sense of shame about. That sounds amazing. Now, (laughs) yeah. And I mean, I like to set the scene, this was like, you know, working class rural Pennsylvania in the 1980s. So it's not like my mother and father sat down and said, we're intentionally going to raise our children with a sex positive ethic. Like that's not what happened. They just, they just were so matter of fact about it. Um, when I was, I mean, I can remember a few key moments that are important to me. So I had a friend when I was like 12 or 13 and we both had crushes on boys. And so we wrote these stories for each other about like, like kind of like fanfic, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like you and this boy are going to make out and it's going to be like this. And I used words that I did not know the meaning of. Um, <laughs> I specifically remember writing in her little story, like you give him head. I did not know what that meant, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I knew it was a thing that was sexy. And right, right. My friend's mother found that and she called my mother flipping out. And I will never forget, my mom was on the phone with her and my mom was calming her down. And then after my mom came to me and is like, so, you know, Debbie's really upset about this thing you wrote. Like, do you you know what you're talking about? And I was like, no. And my mom was just like, okay. And I didn't get in trouble. Yeah. Like she was just she thought the other mother was being ridiculous oh, and I incredible. like you know I'm Aww, so a good moment I know I'm so grateful for that um and then I had a high school boyfriend who was a wonderful person we are still very close friends and my parents would allow us to be in my bedroom with the door closed and his mother would as well and I know that that is 
shocking to a lot of American people. Um, yeah. The reason the reason I make that distinction is because it's a pretty common practice in a lot of like European countries, um, like France, Germany, and the Netherlands. Families have a very matter of fact way of raising their children, and yeah. they often give them the privacy to explore sexuality as teens. Oh, we stand. Um, we stand. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, so my high school boyfriend and I had that respect and privacy. And we were also like very responsible. I was, I feel like the hints that I was going to be a sex educator happened early. Cause I went to right. the, um, I went to the family planning clinic and I got on the birth control pill before I ever had sex for the first time. <laughs> so oh, okay. I was like, yeah, you were prepared. Yeah, I was like, I was, I was like, we can't do it until I've been on the pill for seven days. And we like marked it on the couch. <laughs> that's so great. That is, yeah. that's like wonderful to hear that that reality exists. Like I obviously want to continue and m- expand that reality for all the generations that exist and are going to exist. But I'm, it's really encouraging to hear that that was your story. Yeah. And it, it wasn't until I got a lot older that I realized that wasn't common. Um, you know, and even the, the influence of religion, notwithstanding, just a lot of my friends were like, oh, my God, my mom would never let me and my boyfriend, like, you know, lay on the couch together. Yeah. My mom would never, um, you know, like, and still, like, I have a very open relationship with my parents. And we talk about all kinds of things that, you know, my other friends my age are like, oh, I would never talk to my mom about that. Yeah. So. That's yeah. That's really awesome. Did your parents did they grow up non-religious as well? Yeah, they grew up in um, you know, I I want to clarify like they definitely would consider themselves Christian. They believe in God, mm-hmm. but they're just very casual about it. Yeah. Um right. so we are, you know, I was raised as a Christian in the sense that like we celebrated all major Christian holidays yeah. and I went to vacation Bible school for like a week in the summer, probably so my mom could like get us out of her hair. Totally, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Yeah, but there was never a, um, it wasn't a like ideology or doctrine that was, that was thought about that deeply. Yeah. And, you know, the rest of my extended family was the same way. Like we would go to church on Christmas Eve if we even went to church. Um, so it was like once a tw- once or twice a year. So it was tradition um, it, rather yeah. than like, okay, yeah, that's awesome. Totally. We, were, we were just talking with our friends the other day about um, religion and about all of those, uh, about Christianity and how it can be really chill, like your parents. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like our religion at this point is just don't make it weird. Just don't make it weird, <laughs> literally. <laughs> right. It, it, it's just like once you start imposing things and getting really strange about all of your practical doctrines and all of that, it's it's it just it starts to get a little bit hairy i'm curious yeah. though so without with growing up without all of that influence was there a moment in school when you realized that there was a lot of christian influence on the sex education that was happening like was there a shame center around that in school spaces this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So school spaces... So I went to a public school. Um, It was a very good public school. And we had 
minimal sex education, but at the time I wouldn't have connected that in my brain to any kind of religion. Um, you know, and I did grow up in a very conservative part of Pennsylvania. Mm. Well, I do, I live in Philadelphia now and I've lived in Philly for a long time, but I'm from the part of the state that like by and large voted for Trump, like, you know, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I do. So yeah, I wasn't aware, like we didn't have any kind of sex ed. Well, what I remember is we had a class on AIDS when I was in fourth grade, because Mm -hmm. that was like the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And it was like very, and you know, it was a big topic. Yeah. Um, I also remember... That's yes, because impressive. I would have been, it would have been like 1988 or something. And yeah. that was like the height of, you know, fear around everything. Yeah. Sure. Um, but I don't remember it having anything to do with sex. I just, I yeah. don't know. I, I remember that like people could opt their children out of it. Mm. And like right. one person's mom opted her out. And I still remember who that was. So I'm like, there must oh. have been something significant <laughs> to like, me about wait, that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, why wouldn't you want your kid to know information? Yeah. Um, but when I got to high school in ninth grade, we had like the very traditional, like they separate you by girl and boy and the male gym teacher teaches the boys and the girls gym teacher teaches the girls. And it was, you know, it was by my standards now as a sex educator, it was definitely substandard, but it also wasn't terrible right um like nobody told me that I was you know that I shouldn't absolutely never have sex nobody said you're gonna go to hell like there was nothing like that there was no you know dirty water metaphors um it just wasn't comprehensive and also like when you jump in in ninth grade that's far too late so (laughs) right totally totally yeah okay so well with your not super religious upbringing. Um, you still talk a lot about religion. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And it's because, you know, you tailor your sex education to those who've, as you say it, it come from high demand religions. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm assuming that means not just Christian. Do you work right. with primarily people who come out of Christian purity culture or are there other religions? So primarily Christian purity culture, but I have like, I, I mean, evangelicals, like ex-evangelicals definitely make up the bulk of people who are drawn to my work. Mm -hmm. But I also have worked with, um, lots of um, ex-Mormons, people that were raised in religions that, um, well, I've had people from like very conservative Jewish communities reach out to me. Mm. People from like Muslim religions or the you know Islam, right. <laughs> Islam. Yeah. Um, and then I've you know I've had other folks that came from what they described themselves as cults. So mm-hmm. there was like Christianity, but it was like far beyond, um, you know, just like an evangelical church, right? right. Do you, did you find, or do you find any major differences or major similarities between an evangelical Christian purity culture and someone who, uh, from an Islam religion, do you, are there, is there a big difference is, or is it pretty much the same sort of, um, traumas within purity culture? So the one thing that I have noticed, um, 
in that area is that the like evangelical churches are just so much more in your face about it. Mm, (laughs) Whereas in in some of the religions, it's just like, we don't talk about sex. You know, the rules don't do it until marriage. And that's kind of it. Like, but there's not like, you know, people aren't writing entire books and making like weekend retreats. Evangelicals are obsessed with sex. (laughs) Right. Absolutely obsessed. Like there's no passport to purity in the Orthodox Jewish community. Like at least not that I'm aware of, you know? Yeah. That is, that's really interesting. I feel like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I always, I remember when I was first kind of deconstructing and I was realizing just how much of my, my whole Christian religion and my whole theology was truly just based around sex. Like was, cause I was in a lot of relationships, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> growing up, I was kind of a, I, I loved being in love and I loved going into, um, serious relationships. And so for me, I was often battling quote unquote my sexual desires and um things that I would do with my boyfriends or whatever and so my whole relationship with God was you know am I apologizing right now or am I uh, not being bad am I abstaining from my sexual desires or am I apologizing like where am I at in my life so it's just interesting when I first started deconstructing I realized how much of my faith and my relationship with God was based off of my sex. Right. In our in our conversation so far, I feel like one one piece that's important as far as like my sex educator work and where I first started noticing religion come in hard <laughs> was um, my first job out of college. I was a counselor in an abortion clinic. So I worked in abortion care. I was the person that would like you know, take all of the information about the patients and talk them through the procedure and explain to them what was going to happen and even hold their hand through the procedure. Oh, wow. And, you know, of course, there were protesters at the time of the time that I worked in abortion care. There was the are you guys familiar with the army of God? Um, I don't think I am. I mean, kind of, but <laughs> I no, think probably guess what it is. Yeah, I think I could. I- So at the time, um, there were, let's see. So somebody, the army of God was like a loose, you know, organization of what I would now describe as like domestic terrorists who did things like bombed abortion clinics and shot doctors. And they had a hit list online. They had a website with the names of all of these different abortion care providers, their home addresses and the website was like dripping with blood. And and you imagine, this is like late 90s, like the shittiest HTML you can imagine. (laughs) This is the website. And so this was the culture that was happening in America at the time. It was also, um, you know, there were several men on the FBI most wanted list who had bombed abortion clinics and hadn't been caught. One of them was the same guy that bombed the 96 Olympics. Oh, and. Yeah, there's an entire HBO documentary um, called The Army of God. I don't know where to find it. I had it on VHS many years ago. (laughs) Okay. Um, I bet you could find it on YouTube. It was wild, but that was like the climate at the time. Um, Oh, my word. I I hadn't heard that. That's worse than I thought you were going to say. It was bad. We were in a college town that only had like one or two protesters. We did not have the whole like, 
massive amount of people who would just stand out there every day. Um, But I knew that's what happened at other clinics. And I knew that I was supposed to like, you know, be escorted to my car and not drive the same way home every night. And like, that's what it was like at the Mm -hmm. time. And that's, you know, part of how I came to really understand the hypocrisy behind certain religious beliefs. Also, because we had, we had clients that came in for procedures who would tell me, I just want you to know that I don't believe in this. I just want you to know that I'm Christian. Um, I mean, and it's like they thought I was going to judge them for being there. Mm. And I was just always like, you don't need to tell me. (laughs) Like, I know you're in a situation that you need help in. Like, I don't care what your religious beliefs are. Um, And I'm going to add this story because I think it's so, so telling. But you all know, like, about hell houses, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one day I was, this is when I was in Philadelphia. I was working at a clinic here in Philly and I was holding someone's hand as she was having the procedure. And she said to me, you know, this seems so familiar. And I said, well, you told me that, you know, you'd never had this procedure before. What do you mean? And she said, oh, well, at my church, we did the hell house and I was the abortion girl. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, my word. And she was like, this is nothing like they told us it it would be like. Oh, well, sheesh, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Wow, that is. That is a lot. Okay, so for those listening who don't know what a hell house is, we have spoken about it in other episodes, but basically it's a horror, like it's like a scary, what do you call them, haunted house? It's like a haunted house. Haunted yeah. house, but based in, it's like, it's supposed to be hell. So it's like a, it's like a Christian um, haunted scary. house of hell and the things that you can do to basically... Just go hell. to hell right. or like be in hell. Um, so there's and and oftentimes a lot of one major room would be um, like an abortion clinic, and it, it would be so scary and horrifying and uh, as you can bloody, imagine, just bloody yeah. and gory and horrible. Anyway, um, so that's wow, that's a lot. What went th- what went <laughs> through your head when when she said that? I mean, I just. I mean, I clearly was just like, I knew what a hell house was because at that point, like I had the documentary about them had just come out and I had seen the documentary and I was just like, I was truly not surprised though, because of the amount of people I had like helped through the procedure before who would talk to me about their religious guilt and shame about it. Um, You know, I remember we had a woman who brought in a little vial of holy water and was like, can you baptize the fetus? Um, you know, this was, oh, wow. it was a common, common thing that the people seeking abortion would mention their like religious feelings or their religious guilt. And, you know, oftentimes it, to me, yes, it presented in a very hypocritical way, but I also just had a lot of compassion for them. Right. right. I mean, they're at like such a probably horrible mental state and so you're yeah nothing but love basically right in that yeah. moment so i'm curious for you coming out of those kind of spaces clearly you're surrounded by people that you're trying to talk through all of this trauma and all of that how do you how do you start switching the narrative from 
just repairing trauma to this is normal. This is this is clinical procedure, and 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 to destigmatize um, abortions as like as just a choice uh, rather than it having to be some sort of traumatic situation. You know, like it doesn't have to be that you absolutely cannot have this kid. It can right. be something where you want to choose something else for your life over that. So how do you start? How have you started switching the narrative on that? Mm. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that I like to do is be really, really honest and candid about what I experienced and saw during the time I worked in clinics and just like demystify it. Um, tell folks like, this is what happens. This is the medical procedure. This is the, the types of folks that come in. Um, these are the myths that you've probably heard. Like, no, it's not going to ruin your fertility. Um, you know, and letting them know that all different types of people come in and seek abortion care. A lot of people that already have kids. So honestly, just creating a space where people feel like they can talk about it is very healing because then often they start to realize like, wow, I'm not the only person that had a procedure. Like so many other women I know have had them, but we just weren't talking about them. So I think normalizing, normalizing it as a as a part of medical care and an experience that a lot of, you know, women go through is, is a big first step. Yeah. With all the work that you do, do you ever see people, you know, having purity culture, culture traumas, um, without ever being a part of a religion or does it, is it always like religious based? So, that's a great question because it brings up how I, I consider purity culture somewhat on somewhat of a spectrum. There's the extreme organized, you know, evangelical church purity culture where it's like an industry, an incredibly targeted industry, and it's done with so much intention. Mm. But I also think that in American culture in general, there is you know, purity stuff throughout how we view sexuality. Um, It's in pop culture. It's in our, you know, kind of like mainstream narratives we have about women and sex. So I definitely have clients who experience the harms of like general American society, like the sort of patriarchal crap around women and sex. Mm -hmm that did not specifically come from a church. Um, And some of that, like I'm thinking is people who experience like so much guilt and shame and feel terrible if they have a sexually transmitted infection. Mm. That's not necessarily church purity culture. That is like our whole cultural narrative around STIs. Yeah, totally. But it absolutely is made worse if they were raised in a, you know, in a church with, with the purity culture teachings. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by all the, your research and study and conversations, has this affected the way that you experience spirituality or not spirituality or faith at all? Um, even though you grew up as not entirely super religious, although your parents were kind of Christian, like mm-hmm. what growing up now, like as an adult, what does your faith look like now or or non-faith look like now? (laughs) Yeah, that is a great question. And honestly, one that I probably don't spend enough time pondering myself. (laughs) I know like 
that, you know, deconstructed folks have thought so much more about their faith than I probably ever have or mm. will. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think if you want to get down to it, the technical term that would describe me would be agnostic. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I pray, it's too... I just like think thoughts in my head and they're not necessarily being addressed to like someone that I recognize as like Jesus or God. It's just kind of like, I'm sending this out into the universe to whoever yes. might, do you know <laughs> to whom mean? it may concern. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have, because I don't have religious trauma, like things that I know are very triggering to my clients, like, having to go in church for other reasons, like maybe a wedding or a funeral, like none mm. of that happens to me because it's always just been this really neutral space for me. Right. So, you know, I have, um, you know, if I, if I go to church on Christmas Eve with my family, I generally consider it a really lovely experience. I yeah. like the candlelight. I like the, the music and, but I also am not devout in any sense to any particular you know, tradition. Yeah, right. It's interesting. Um, in we don't just deconstruct right in life. Uh, hopefully the, the point <laughs> is we go through cycles and then we reconstruct. And I think one of the things that like I've been able to heal in, which has been really cool um, because yes, I don't really fit perfectly into a label, but probably agnostic fits me best. Um, but one of the cool things about my, a lot of my healing and reconstruction is the traditions, some of the traditions, like a Christmas Eve service or, you know, celebrating Easter with my family or things like that. Like, I think like I'm starting to really enjoy these things as, as beautiful, like ceremonies or traditions, just like I would any other religion or any other spiritual practice as, oh, wow, that was really beautiful. Or, oh, that was, you know, that meant a lot because I got to center myself and I got to hear beautiful music and be around community and you know we can all just I, I don't know I feel like I'm finally able to have those moments whereas you know several years ago I, things were very triggering for me anything mentioning yeah. God or or even the Bible or oh, anything like that it was like my guards would go up and my walls would go up and I would be worried that people were trying to press things and but now I think I'm able to see Christianity like I see any other religion that I don't entirely align with. I just mm -hmm. I can see it for its beautiful parts. Yeah. And I mean, I learn so much from my clients having not been raised in you know, like a very conservative religious faith. I I did not know what all went into it until I began specifically working with people raised in purity culture. And for me, like one of the biggest aha moments was realizing after seeing so many clients that like, oh, these folks have been told from birth that they are just inherently bad people. Mm. That was not a message that I received. And I realize now that it is a privilege to not have been received mm. with that or to have it's a privilege to not have been raised with that like teaching. Yeah. So, you know, my clients are always like, oh yeah, we were never allowed to like trust ourselves or our own instincts or our own emotions. Totally. And, you know, we were told that we were going to go to hell. And when I was a kid, I thought only like murderers and Hitler went to hell. <laughs> Nobody told me <laughs> that I could go to hell. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, okay. and that being said, you you do identify as queer, correct? Yes. Uh huh. So was that something that you you always knew, or did you find you know discover that in your later years? That for me is something that I was definitely aware of in high school. So while at the okay. time I had like a boyfriend and I had a wonderful time with him, I also knew I wasn't straight. Mm-hmm. But again, this was like the 1990s in rural Pennsylvania before the internet and social media. So I didn't have uh, words or examples of, you know, what to call myself or how to identify. Right. So I realized that I was attracted and could date and be with people of all different genders eventually. So that is, yeah, I came into that knowledge like in high school and college. Mm. Gotcha. Which is funny because nowadays some people consider that late. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. But I mean, but at, like, least well, it yeah. wasn't, at least it wasn't like in your 30s and 40s. I feel like that's like, that is like usually, I feel like the conversations that we have with people a lot of the times, at least here on the podcast, it's a lot of people who've deconstructed and then mm-hmm. were able to deconstruct their, the purity culture and the shame that they probably had felt their whole life and then realized that they were queer. Right. That is a huge amount of what a huge amount of the conversations I have with clients. And um, I run support groups specifically for folks who have that experience. Mm. It's the Purity Culture Dropout Queer Support Group. And, you know, last time I ran it, I got I had so many folks I had. I run like concurrent ones. So I had like five different groups and there were like 10 people in each group. So it's a and people you know, they really, really struggle in wondering, would I have had this realization earlier if I had mm. been raised in in a different environment? Yeah. Right. You know, I just, I just kind of like thought if, if we can continue to expand and help people understand in that are raised in religion, that LGBTQ plus people are deserving of love and are equally, um, loved by God and, um, are worthy, would there be as many people who feel like they need to have some sort of coming out or are, would we get to a point where a coming out conversation just like wouldn't have to happen? Cause I was trying to imagine, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I don't know your story with your parents, but mm-hmm. if your parents aren't super religious, I, I can't, I can't imagine there would have to be like this big, long conversation about you, you coming out to your parents, but correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. No, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I told them when I was in my mid twenties and I, I was, I waited until I was in like a relationship with somebody that was a woman. And so I could be like, Hey, I have a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> so, and when I did that, they were, they immediately said all of the things that you would want your parents to say, like, we support you no matter what. And we just want you to be happy. Um, you know, my mom had a little of that initial worry, like, I'm afraid this will be harder for you because people will judge you. But no, I did not have, like, there was no like ideology to battle. And, you know, she wasn't like, I'm worried that you're going to go to hell or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but I do see us in some, some like circles moving towards, so much openness around sexuality and gender that people are raising their children to know that all these identities are valid. Yeah. And right. so their children feel comfortable and like, they're like, Oh yeah, I've always known 
about gay and trans people. So if they happen to come out or, you know, share their identities at a young age, it's kind of like a non-event. Right. right. I'm just ready for straight to not be the, what do you call just it? the default. The oh, default. yeah, the default. Well, I think, Absolutely. I think a lot of the work that you're doing, too, is so important because I, in the same capacity, if if we had health education in schools that was just as equally serving to those in the LGBTQ community, I feel like it would also, without even having to have the 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 lens of a religion, you wouldn't even have to have that conversation as much because because it would already be established that the normalcy of it and the and and just education around all of it, so that there was never there was never any this is default and this is and this is askew from that. It just yes. would it just would all be the same it would all be equal and it would be amazing and and i love that you're doing a lot of that work at what point did it change for you from like just being some events you would throw in college to to starting your own platform here hey everyone want to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening if you like what you're hearing please share this episode and rate and review the podcast as it helps others find this online community Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. Oh yeah, that that took quite a while. Um, and that's another thing that's interesting to me just about my age is like when I got into the sex education field, nobody was creating any kind of like brand with their name. There wasn't social media. So I came up in this field in a pretty like, I don't know, a traditional way. I worked in public health. I worked in clinics. I worked for a children's hospital. I worked for like nonprofit organizations. And that's the work that I did for years that involved like um, youth in detention and HIV prevention. Mm. Yeah. And after, you know, I was, I did that work for until 2019. I, I knew that I wanted to move on from that work and I wanted to work for myself. And I didn't quite know how that would look. So, I started sort of planning and strategizing and I created my platform and, you know, I had a very small and modest following when I first started asking folks about purity culture and whether or not it had affected them. And I got such overwhelming responses. Like mm. I did not know the can of worms I would be opening by just saying like, Hey, were you raised in this tradition and has it affected you at all? And when I got so many folks sharing all of the things that they wish they had known, that's when I got the idea to like tailor my, um, my education that way. That's awesome. I love it. I I've been loving your Instagram and your, your account and especially like the, the things that you kind of flip flop, like you'll take like a purity culture, um, uh, thought process or even like practice, like, um, I actually want to tell a story in a minute, but um, mm -hmm. you take like your writing a letter to your spouse, future partner, or whatever, oh, yeah. and you rewrote that and the purity pledge. And um, that was fun. <laughs> I, I love that you did that. So like that was I was reading through it and um, I've read it once before, but then I just was rereading it again today. And it just like I think just because I was settled when I was reading it, it hit me mm -hmm. so differently because. Um, something I wanted to kind of bring up for, you know, this conversation just for our listeners, because there's so many of us, I think, did this. But um, 
So when I was 12 years old, my mom, she asked a Christian female leader to come speak at uh, my little girl's small group um, about how to dress modestly. And she went through the exact measurements to follow and, um, you know, between inches and all of this stuff. And then after going through the rules, we also talked about saving ourselves, quote unquote, i.e. not having sexual encounters ever until we were Mm -hmm. married um, to someone one day. And you know, we wouldn't, of course, they would told us that we didn't want to be chewed up gum. And um, after that, absolutely thrilling message. They asked us to go write a letter to our future husbands, of course, um, not partner, yeah. it was husbands. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were had to via- vow our purity and our loyalty to them and practically beg our future husbands to do the same. And it was, it was as much a prayer as it was a letter. And I kept that letter my my whole life until so I even incorporated parts of it in my vows to Adam. Wow, uh, yeah, years ago uh, when we got married, and and it's funny because like literally right after we got married, we like were done with religion. <laughs> <laughs> um, we like started deconstructing like really hard. And well, so, once you realize that all sex is sex and not I, just penetration yeah, is sex, I literally it did. kind of throws everything else out the window. I was like, okay, <laughs> so sure does. literally everything's done. Um, so I need to figure out what I believe. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I had some parts of that in the vows and of course some were, some parts were sweet, some were cringy and then the really bad parts I left out. But uh, the point <laughs> of me telling this story is you know, when I saw that you you did that, uh, writing a letter to your future partner, and you reframed it, of course, to be sex positive, um, it really was super healing to me because you can learn, right? You can learn new things. You can unlearn theology, but there's a there's in a way there's a part of you because of time. And at one point you were given tools. And at one point you had true experiences. Like I had a true experience of, you know, these purity culture messages. Um, I think redoing those things in a different light or with a different message is what's, it was healing for my 12 year old self, not just like mm-hmm. me learning now. Cause I know this, I know all this to be yeah. true. You know, I, when I read the letter, I was like, yeah, yeah, I know this to be true, but something inside me like was like welling up because I was like, Oh no, no. Like 12 year old me needs this. And so Aww. with yeah. your permission, um, can I, can I read your sex positive reframe of a letter to a future partner? I would love you to, because I, I truly don't remember everything I said, so I would like to hear it too. Perfect. Okay, so this is for, for you, and it's for me, and it's for everyone listening who potentially did that or was encouraged to do that, and um, yeah, so here it is. This is Erica Smith's um, sex-positive reframe of a letter to a future partner. Dear future partner, I have no idea when we will meet. So, I hope that before you know me, you enjoy your life to the fullest. I know that may include romance, love, and sex with others, and I wish that for you. I don't know you yet, so it's not my place to put parameters or expectations on how you're living at the moment. Know that I may have had romance and sexual experiences before we meet as well. It's literally my body and my life, and I'm not going to live my current life for a future person that doesn't even exist yet to me. No offense. In fact, (laughs) which I thought was so cute. In fact, 
I wouldn't want to partner up with someone who judged me for my past sexual experiences or expected me to wait my whole life until I met them to hold hands or kiss. Like, can you even imagine being that controlling of someone? No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that whatever you're doing now is wonderful and fulfilling for you and that you experience pleasure and joy. I'm going to do the same. By the time we get together, we may have learned some important lessons about sex, love, and relationships. Then we can keep growing together. Other relationships won't ruin us, but they'll probably teach us a lot. I'm looking forward to meeting you someday. XO, your future partner. I guess I I did good. (laughs) You did so good. And it's so, so, um... It's not that I would ever really want anyone to to hear how hear my vows necessarily, but it is online. And if you if you go to that, if you see and listen to how I wrote as a twelve year old twelve year old and even now, like in a journal, you wrote that, it literally sounds like me. Like the way you're like, Aww. No, thank you and little like sassy I mean, I, things. It sounds like me too. I know what I know what a twelve year old girl <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You're like, who would want that? Not me. Like, I just thought that was, I, I saw myself so much in that. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I really, I really could have used that. And I really would have loved that because I liked the format. I liked talking to a future person that maybe is going to exist one day. I don't know. But, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that practice was really fun for me, but also was really damaging because it's something I, that was in the back of my mind that the, the messaging was the damaging part, you know, well, because telling you're... I was in my message, I was telling my future person to not do anything ever. Please don't. Right. Oh my gosh, please don't. I'll be so torn and broken <laughs> because I'm the one waiting and blah, 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 which yeah. years later, I, I, I had sexual experiences and Adam actually never had. So it, it just wasn't, <laughs> that it didn't go like how I had planned as a 12 year old, but that, that haunted yeah. me, you know? And I just, I absolutely, I absolutely adore that you did that. So thank you for, thank you for putting in the work. Oh yes. I like, it means so much to hear from you how poignant that was to you because you know, that's, that's why I do these reframes and I, you know, I know that they're, my hope is that they will help people heal Um, and you sharing that with me is like, just, I just appreciate that. So thank you as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Our younger selves need to have history rewritten sometimes. And, um, I think that, and then, you know, your purity culture, your, your not purity culture, your purity pledge or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, your, your sex positive purity pledge. I read that and I was like, I love that. I didn't actually, I think I might've did that, but I think I didn't really pay much attention as much attention as I did about the letter. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, that's funny and cute. But like that letter just (laughs) hit me like a ton of bricks. So, um, is that all, is that the kind of thing that's like in your purity culture dropout program? So yeah, yeah, that's a great question. My, my program is completely individually and I'm sorry, individually tailored. So every single person that I do the intensive one-on-one work with, we have like, you know, we go back through their history and evaluate and discuss all of the things that came up for them around sex and sexuality from the time they were from their earliest memory until Mm -hmm. now. And using their life and their experiences, I find what areas to, you know, give them more education on or to give them some, 
you know, reframes around. So yes, if you're a client that told me I wrote a letter to a future spouse, one of the things that I may have you do is like, what would you say now knowing what you know? Or if you're not married yet, what would you say to your future spouse? So it's, yeah, sometimes I do have folks do activities like that or even write letters to their, you know, younger selves Mm. and, you know, forgive themselves for some of the, you know, I also, the folks I work with sometimes feel guilty for perpetuating the same, the same ideology. Totally. You know, and, and I'm always like, I want you to have compassion for yourself because you didn't do that out of your own free will. Like you were, you were entrenched in a system where doing that was logical and that's how you you know, survive. Yeah. So right. that was, that please. was me in CCM. You yeah. Know, I, I, I perpetuated it as well. And that was a, that was a whole thing I had to do, like forgive myself and walk through like, Oh gosh, I, I it wasn't many, but there were a few times mm-hmm. early on in my career where I was in a room full of girls and I talked about modesty and, you know, the, the one that always like kills me inside is the one that I, I was like, so something like what you like, essentially what you put out is what you get and 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 I and the way you dress, you know, so like what kind of guys are going to be into you if you dress certain mm-hmm. ways? And like, of course, that to me is like that leads to rape culture. And I'm it, it's something I, I hate. And I hope that I hope those girls honestly still follow me because right. now I can <laughs> I can show them that that's not how I live my life and that's not correct. And um how it's, you know, it hurt me. And so anyway, I, I honestly hope yeah. those, those girls follow me, but yeah, I had to do work in forgiving myself. And part of, mm-hmm. part of that too, is like, it's, it's part of what inspired me to be so vocal when I did deconstruct, because I just wanted everyone to know that I no longer aligned with the things that I used to. I just wanted a clean cut, which of course it's not, it's not clean. <laughs> it's not a pretty clean cut, but um, I yeah. did, I did the most that I could in the very beginning to be as stark and as, as drastic as I could just to, to let everyone know um, where I was at. And that was part of my healing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, you have a podcast, which is a great way to like continue to, <laughs> you know, elevate your own voice and let folks know that, you know, about your personal evolution. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's I'm, I'm thankful every day that i have this and I have the community that we do. And, um, yeah, it's just so beautiful. And I love, I love all the listeners too. So everyone listening, actually, (laughs) thank you for listening in. Um, Erica, you are just so awesome and I love the work that you do. Um, can you just tell us real quick, um, how, how people can find you and find your programs and if they're interested, especially knowing that it's, it's tailored to them. Um, that's something that not a lot of programs or people are offering. Um, so I think that's really unique. So how can people find you? Yeah. So I primarily, my like hub of my work is Instagram. My account is Erica Smith dot sex ed and Erica is spelled with a C. My website is puritycultureDropout.com, And on that website, you will find, um, some ebooks like there's one um i have a sexual values workbook so you can like analyze and reconstruct your own set of sexual values i love it there is a um a book for parents who are answering their kids sex questions 
And I also have some webinars that are up that I recorded, um, sex education lessons and one on how to date and have more casual relationships after purity culture. So yeah, all of that is at my website. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and for sharing all of that. It's just, it's so awesome what you do. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. All right, everyone, make sure you check her out. Her work is amazing. You won't be disappointed. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, bye. bye.